in part six of a seven-week series of conversations about relationships. And um, to this point, we've been talking mostly directly to single people and the needs that single people have on the dating scene. Today, we're going to pivot a little bit and talk about um, what happens when uh, you find someone, when you decide to to lock it down and become uh, exclusive, um, what kinds of issues do you run into at that point? Um, so every week we have a ground rule, and today's ground rule is healthy couples fight fair. Healthy couples fight fair. And uh, as you can see, uh, today's sketch on the far left, done by uh, uh, the Gonzalez's, Nick and Katie, they're doing all of these, and next week we'll celebrate all of these sketches that, that they've um, done. I think it's just awesome work. But today we're talking about um, healthy couples fighting fair. I got to say, I don't think that looks like a fair fight to me. They're back-to-back uh, -back <laughs> screaming in the other opposite directions, but I understand the limitations of this particular canvas. So uh, the, we'll talk about um, the right and wrongs around um, conflict resolution. I wondered, honestly, I wondered this week if uh, I should change the sermon and just talk about Charlottesville. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought it kind of works uh, to talk about conflict resolution in the way of Jesus today, um, and I'm talking about it specifically around one-on-one -on -one romantic relationships, but I think you'll find that some of these things translate pretty well to some of these social issues that we're facing as well. The question of the day, every week we've had a different question that we're wrestling with. Today's question is, are you dealing with your issues? Are you dealing with your issues? Are we dealing as a relationship with our issues? Look, if you're single and you're like, well, my part of the series is over, um, I, hope that, <laughs> I hope that you'll stay with me because I think uh, these are principles, ideas that you'll want to know to build a relationship on. Um, and if you're married and thinking, man, uh, this is great, but it really would have helped, you know, 10 years ago before we walked down the aisle <laughs> to hear these things, um, I want you to know that it's never too late. Uh, it's never too late to get on the right track. So... Um, what happens when two people decide to go exclusive? It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty rare these days when two people happen to swipe right at the same time on each other and there's a match. And then they meet and neither one of them are a perv. And it's like, wow, this is, there are real people and there's like, a, there's a real person that likes me and I like them. And, and then suddenly you've decided this, I'm going to date this person. I'll tell you, as a pastor, like, it's very little in the world that warms my heart more than that. Because I know the struggle of, of many single people. Not everybody that's single just hates being single. But, but there's, a, there's a, a lot of pressure for single people. So when there's someone that finds a match, man, I struggle with this. On the one hand, I'm overjoyed. My first reaction is just joy. I'm elated. But there's this joy that's mixed in together with this irrational protectionism. And like I just, I turn into like, uh, like a father figure almost. Even without you asking me to, it probably is weird to hear this. It probably crosses some kind of professional boundaries. But I immediately go into, all right. I need to meet this person. I need to know who this person is. And Gio's right there with me. Pastor Gio and I, as we talk about this a lot, like I wonder who this person is that so-and-so is dating. And, uh, you know, so we, we want to do our due diligence. We want to make sure that they're not some kind of, you know, 
double agent for Satan or something that's going to take you away from the path that you're on because uh, that kind of thing actually happens, not satanic double agents necessarily, but things that give us the sense of wanting to be protected. You just need to know that that's kind of where our heads are at when we ask you for that person's name. If you're dating someone new, we ask you for their name. We're not making conversation. It's not just innocent inquiry. We're going to go and stalk them like you would not believe. We're going to see every online profile they've ever created since MySpace. Like we're going to go all the way back, all the way back. Whatever was before MySpace, whatever that, anything? That was the first one, right? So uh, whatever that, there was a blogger site or something that was before MySpace. We're going to see their J-date. We're going to see it all. Like we're going to check it all out. And because we got to make sure that they're not going to hurt you. We got to make sure they're worthy of you. And that's weird, right? But I... It's just a natural reaction when you care for somebody because when you care for somebody and you're in a relationship and you have been for a long time like Gio and I have, like you know how hard relationships are. You know how tough it is. You know what a risk a relationship is because a relationship is an investment, right? And all of you know that any investment by definition is going to be a risk. But with a relationship, you're not investing dollars and cents. You're investing your heart. You're investing your sense of self-worth. You're investing your emotions and your most precious commodity, especially for many people in the single dating scene, time. You're investing time in one person when there's all these other people out there who could be the one you're saying, I'm investing my time only in you. That's a big deal. And it's a big deal, especially since you've known this person you're investing your heart in for a relatively short period of time. You don't know them that well yet. And you're saying, here I am, all of me, be careful, you know. And so there's this, there's this, there's this protective side of, of me because um, when you're just starting out, uh, you, you're not going to see that danger. I mean, unless you're just really jaded by some past relationships. When you're starting out in a new relationship, all you see is this momentum of new love, this new love momentum. You just, you just ride that wave, man, and you think, Man, other people said relationships are hard, but this is easy. And you never fight. And other people that do fight, you look down on them because, man, I wish, I wish everybody had what we had. You know, like that kind, of a, that kind of an arrogance. But, man, pride comes before the fall, does it not? I mean, in everything, but especially in relationships, pride comes before the fall. Every relationship is bound to fall out of orbit, down to earth, come crashing down to earth to fall into conflict. It's going to happen. The question is, when that happens, what do you do? So you're cruising along. Everything's great. It looks easy. It feels good. And then you meet each other's parents. And you crash down to earth. Or then you realize... She never stopped texting her ex. And she says it's just a friend thing, and it looks just friendly, but she could have told me. Or you realize he's got a little bit more of a history with dating and sex than, than he might have let on. And this is a surprise to you. Or you, the more you spend time with each other, the more you realize you had maybe a little less in common than you originally thought. And suddenly you've got all these cracks in the foundation that you used to think, you know, days ago was so solid and before long you're one of those couples that's fighting. Now you might think at that point, if you're not ready for it, you might think maybe this relationship was not meant to be because healthy couples aren't supposed to fight. We didn't used to fight. Maybe this is just wrong. 
Maybe I need to look elsewhere. But listen, all the experts that I read, and I read like insanely, uh, I read insane numbers of books for this, for this particular sermon. All the relationship experts say that fighting is good. Fighting is healthy for relationships. Y'all believe that? Like, I'm, I have to now. I've read too many experts that said it, but I gotta be honest, when I was growing up, this is not the impression that I got. This is not the impression that I got about fighting. I was raised with the impression that fighting is something that unhealthy couples do. And that strong couples don't go at it. Only the bad relationships is where the fighting is. So I think this happened to me for two reasons. Some of y'all might relate to this. I watched a lot of TV growing up and all my favorite TV couples, I mean, they never, they never fought. At least the ones I wanted to be like, you know, um, there were some, I guess, uh, who's the guy? Ed O'Neill. This is totally off script, by the way. So Ed O'Neill, married with children, right? Like that was a, an example of a couple that fought, but nobody wanted to be them. You know what I mean? Like the couples I wanted to be, they didn't fight. Like from Growing Pains, the Seavers, uh, Jason and Maggie Seaver, they didn't fight. You never saw them just going at it and throwing things around the house, you know, like breaking dishes and stuff. Even though... Leonardo DiCaprio tried to steal all their liquor once. Did y'all know this? This actually happened. Leonardo DiCaprio, teenage Leo, tried to steal all the Seavers' liquor once. Do you think that got between Jason and Maggie Seaver? No. No, they never let anything get between them because they were a good couple. And there were other examples like Uncle Phil and Aunt Viv from, from the, the Bel Air, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, right? And they never fought, even though Aunt Viv literally became a whole different person. Between seasons three and four, which was traumatic for me as a child. Was, what is happening? What happened to Aunt Viv? It didn't phase Uncle Phil. Uncle Phil was cool because real couples, they don't, they don't fight. Maybe it felt like it was an upgrade. I don't know, but they, real couples don't fight. And, and that's the message that I got. Even the Huxtables, who I grew up deeply admiring, even the Huxtables didn't fight. Even though there were clearly some issues under the surface and not what you think right now. I know Heathcliff had some issues that we didn't learn about for another couple decades. But the other issue was that Cliff was clearly not the father of his oldest two daughters. You know what I mean? So he clearly was not Denise and Sandra's dad. Cliff could have gone to Maury Povich with this stuff. Like he was clearly quite different than Denise and Sandra. But they didn't fight. The other thing I learned about relationships was from my own parents, who I love dearly. They have a great marriage. And when I was growing up, my parents never fought in front of me and my sister. I hardly ever remember them actually fighting in front of us. Now, here's what I do remember. I remember long, super awkward, really quiet car rides <laughs> where you could sense some tension. You just, as a child, you didn't know what was going on. Like, are, are we short on cash or, you know, did I do something wrong? But... What I didn't realize then is that that was them not fighting in front of me and my sister. They were trying to protect us, right? So they would wait until they got home, super awkward in the car, wait until we got home. Then they would go into their room and have it out in their room. Here's the problem. Our walls were super thin and our house was kind of small. We heard everything anyway. But here's what that did to us. My parents were doing the very best that they, that they could. They were young parents and, and I love them to death. But by trying to protect my sister and me from their conflict, what they were really showing us is that conflict is taboo. Conflict belongs behind closed doors. Conflict maybe even is something you should be ashamed of. 
Otherwise, why would you have to go behind closed doors to do it? And so that's the message that I got loud and clear um, from my parents about um, conflict. It was kind of stigmatized, right? So I grew up to be extremely conflict averse. I, I grew up fearing and avoiding conflict. If you have any doubts about that, just talk to Pastor Gio after the service and she will tell you just how sickly conflict averse I was when we got married. Now maybe some of y'all did too. My sense is that most of y'all might have to varying degrees grown up with some conflict aversion. Because in our polite sort of western upwardly mobile culture, the message we all get is that healthy couples don't fight. That conflict is a red flag. If you fight in a relationship, that means something is wrong. What I hope you hear today is that while fighting in a relationship, while conflict is not necessarily a red flag, avoiding conflict is always a red flag. If you're just getting started in a relationship, you need to know this. Fighting in a relationship, conflict, if it's good conflict that leads to resolution and deeper love, that's not a red flag at all. But if, if you avoid conflict, if you run from conflict and flee it, or if you fight dirty, then yeah, it's always going to be a red flag. It's important to know when you're just starting out. Now, the best time uh, to learn how to fight fair is when you're just getting started. Because every time a couple fights dirty, it makes the journey back toward healing just that much longer. And this is where it's a little hard for me to talk because I, I don't want people that have been together for a long time and they have been fighting dirty for a long time. I don't want y'all to feel like it's hopeless. I'm just going to tell you very honestly, it's much easier to learn the practices of healthy fighting, fair fighting from the beginning rather than trying to relearn them after years of fighting dirty. Here's what happens to a couple when they fight dirty. Over time, it's like going down a road, a dirt road in a horse and buggy. And every time you drive down that road, your buggy creates deeper ruts. And your buggy kind of gets stuck in those same ruts. And every time you do it, the ruts get deeper and harder to get out of. Every single time you fight dirty in a relationship, that's you and the person you're with going down that same road, digging deeper ruts. And the deeper those ruts get, the harder it is to get out of. Now, anything's possible and, and healing can come. And don't hear me saying anything other than that. I'm just saying, I think all of us who have been in unhealthy relationships fighting unfair for years, all of us would say to people just starting out, here, this is what you need to avoid. Learn now how to fight fair so you don't end up with these same ruts in your relationship. Now, what are some of the ways that people fight dirty and get into those ruts? Some of this will sound pretty obvious and familiar. The most po popular fighting dirty technique is passive aggression. Passive aggression is a favorite pastime of probably half the room. And uh, it's the people whose eyes are rolling right now. Those are the ones who's, uh, who struggle the most. Passive aggression includes the silent treatment, sulking on a couch, saying nothing's wrong when everybody knows there's something wrong. Uh, you pout, you leave the room without any resolution, you, you demonstrate indirect hostility, you manipulate someone else's emotions, you say, I'm fine, whatever, when everybody else knows you're not fine. Now, if you're in a relationship with a passive-aggressive person, you know how hard it is, basically impossible it is, to resolve conflict ever with a passive-aggressive person. It just gets uglier and uglier. So I would say to you, if you're starting out in a relationship and you've already seen signs that this person you're with is, uh, tends to be passive-aggressive in times of conflict, don't take another step 
down that road until there's some sign from them that they're willing to work on this. Because this is something that doesn't change without intentionality. And so don't commit one step further until you've both decided to work on fighting fairer, fighting a little healthier um, than just being passive aggressive. Other dirty fighting techniques, y'all all know this, uh, it's extremism. Uh, either extreme silence, like my parents in the car, or extreme outbursts, like my parents in their room. So um, the, the, it can go from one end to the other. So you're either like cold shoulder uh, fighter, or you can be someone who just gets outraged and you put a hole in the wall or something like that. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that we call extremism. It always prevents resolution. Um, digging up the past is an incredibly unhelpful way to fight. If you're in the middle of one fight and then you're bringing up that last fight that you won so handily um, because you're losing this one, um, that's a diversionary tactic. That doesn't do anyone any good. Casting out insults, calling each other names, recreating past events in ways they didn't actually happen, retelling the story again so that it better benefits the stance you're taking in a fight. All of these things break down trust and they make resolution less possible. Another one that's really popular, you guys, and we gotta, we gotta really stop doing this, is the threats. The threats to leave. Mid-fight, I'm gonna leave this room right now. Or I'm gonna leave you. Or I'm gonna leave this marriage. Guys, I'm just gonna tell you, as long as breaking up or divorce is on the table in every fight, you're not gonna get through and resolve that conflict. It's always going to be there looming over you. Even if you do resolve it, it's just going to be resolved under the threat of this ultimatum. And it's not real peace. It's artificial peace. So uh, those kinds of threats are just dirty fighting. There's this couple that I care about so much. Uh, they were in one of my churches in Kansas City. Their names are, uh, I'll just tell you, uh, fake names so I don't embarrass them if they're listening online or whatever. Aaron and Jess. Aaron and Jess, uh, beautiful young couple. They were the couple every couple wanted to be. They met in college. They got engaged um, pretty soon after they started dating. They just knew because they were so insanely happy at first. But the longer Aaron and Jess stayed together, the less happy they felt because those conflicts began to creep in. And the truth was, neither of them had any idea how to deal with conflict. Jess and Aaron, neither of them had any clue how to fight fair. And at first their fights were super simple. Like he had these immature friends that brought out the worst in him. And she had these unstable emotions that made him feel like he's standing on shifting sand. Does this sound familiar to anyone in the room today? It probably does. So that's the way they fought in the beginning. Now, over time, instead of figuring out how to fight fair um, before walking down the aisle, over time they got married and said, we'll figure it out along the way. One day we'll figure out how to fight fair. Let's get married first, um, which isn't always the best choice. But it's worked out for this couple, I will say. Um, but it was a long road to get there. And when they got married, their fight started getting more serious. The things that Jess used to tolerate about Aaron soon became unbearable in the light of day. Like how close he was with his mother. I will tell you about a fourth of the couples that I counsel have issues with somebody's mother being too close. So mothers in the room, just FYI. And couples in the room, FYI. Interfering mothers or mother-in-laws, right? So what Aaron's mom would do is he would make Jess feel like she and uh, her mom, his mom were always in competition for Aaron's attention. 
for his time, for his affection. And Jess felt like no matter how hard she fought, she always lost. But Aaron always chose his mom over her. And every time Aaron failed to stand up for Jess in front of his mom, she respected him a little bit less. Now Aaron had his issues with Jess too. And these were pretty typical things, but Aaron had an issue with Jess being a slob. She never liked to clean the house. And even though he worked more than she did, she didn't keep a clean house. And when he got home, he'd get frustrated. She also never initiated coloring with, with Adam. I mean, Aaron. There I go. And that's the second service in a row I've done that, by the way. Anyway, y'all didn't hear that. And this drove Aaron crazy. Um, but but these, were, these were not out of the ordinary problems. These were super ordinary issues. But Jess and Aaron were just extraordinarily bad at resolving conflict. And it's crazy how the most ordinary issues will become extraordinary battles when you don't deal with them right away. And you don't deal with them, well, it really doesn't take long to have an all-out knockdown drag out on your hands. So here's what would happen, y'all. Whenever Jess complained to Aaron about his mom, Aaron would get defensive and combative toward Jess. He would say to her, you knew how close I was with my mom before I asked you to marry me. Why did you say yes? And Jess would say, I don't know why I said yes anymore. And so a simple argument turns into, are we even supposed to be together anymore? Instant escalation. And so then, Aaron would say, oh, is that why you never want to color with me? Is that why you never come to me for coloring? And Jess would go, no, I don't want to color with you because all you ever do is complain about how dirty the house is. And then Aaron would say, excuse me for wanting to live in a clean house. And then Jess would say, why don't you call your mommy to come clean it for you? And then Aaron would up the ante and say, at least she would do it if I asked her to. And the rest of that exchange has been redacted for profanity. I can't go into what came next. A simple spat turns into World War III in just a matter of minutes because Aaron didn't hear his wife's pain about his mom. He just immediately went on defense. He didn't hear what she was really saying, how it really made her feel. And in Aaron's defense, Jess wasn't always doing great about hearing Aaron, because the backstory there is that a few years before Jess was on the scene, Aaron's dad unexpectedly died. And Aaron felt this overwhelming sense of obligation toward his mom. Now, it was not healthy. Probably should have had a few more boundaries. But there should have at least been a sense of compassion and, and empathy there given the situation. But what, what that developed in Aaron was this sense of insecurity about being a mama's boy in his wife's eyes. And that insecurity was compounded by Jess's lack of interest in coloring with Aaron. And then Aaron's defense mechanism became complaining about the dirty house. But every time he complained about the dirty house, all Jess heard was, you'll never be as good as my mom, which is probably the least effective turn on for a woman in a marriage situation. And so Aaron never got what he was really after in the first place, which if you're wondering what that is, just ask the man sitting next to you. So they, they just kept getting worse, worse and worse because they didn't know how to resolve a simple conflict. And I'll have to tell you that the, the most shocking thing about couples that have struggled with conflict has been the ways we talk to each other. 
the, the things we say to the person who's closest to us. Man, some of the language we use in our relationships, y'all, it's unbelievable how the person you supposedly love the most in the world, especially if you're married and all that, the things you say to them you would never say to a perfect stranger on the street. The words you use, man, they matter. Think about this analogy for a second. So imagine you have a house guest coming over for dinner and you've worked all day to prepare this dinner. And you've asked this house guest just to bring you one, one item because you wanted to give them something to bring to make them feel better about coming over and eating your food or whatever. And so you tell them to bring some bread. And you've made this meal and kind of, kind of centers around the bread. It's kind of important. So you told them exactly what kind of bread to get. But they show up to your house and they've forgotten. They've forgotten the bread. Now, what do you say to a perfect stranger or a house guest when they show up for dinner and they've forgotten your bread? You say, hey, hey, come on in. It's okay. Don't worry. You forgot the bread. We were carb heavy anyway. We're not running any marathons here. Y'all come on in. Sit down. Make yourself at home. And then you have a nice dinner sans bread. But imagine that instead of the house guest, you ask your husband to bring the bread. And he worked all day or whatever. It's just an analogy, right? It could be reversed. He worked all day. He comes home from work to get there in time to help you spruce up the house or whatever, but he forgets the bread. And he shows up five minutes before the guests arrive without the bread. Now, what do you say to him? when he doesn't have the bread that your meal depends on. You say, hey, it's okay. We're carb-heavy anyway. Nobody's running marathons here. Have a seat. Probably not, right? <laughs> Probably say some version of what's wrong with you. Why don't you listen to me? You know, uh, I've worked on this meal for hours. You can't even remember the bread. That was the one thing I asked you to do. Maybe you even revert to to name calling, you're an idiot, and he says, you're an idiot, and then the doorbell rings, and you're both like, hey! Like you didn't three seconds ago call each other idiots. You're welcoming these guests as if you're, you know, June and Ward Cleaver or something. And I'll tell you, that kind of hypocrisy is romance kryptonite that kills true connection. People who fight dirty, people who call each other names, people who pretend like everything's okay, but deep down there's just all this angst, man. They haven't learned the value of conflict. You haven't learned to see conflict as the gift that it really is. The opportunity to make peace in a relationship is a gift because that opportunity is a gospel opportunity. If you're following Jesus, there's no better opportunity in your life to mirror the love of Jesus than when you're in the midst of a conflict with someone you love. It's exactly what Jesus came to do, is to amend or resolve a conflict that existed between us and God. And Jesus said that the peacemakers will be blessed. He said they'll be called children of God. And if you want to be a child of God and see the blessings of God, you've got to learn to be a peacemaker. But listen, you cannot make peace by avoiding conflict, by running out of the room, or by name-calling and getting super aggressive and fighting dirty. Peacemakers fight but they fight fair. So if you're dating, you're hoping to find love, you're in a relationship already, I don't want to oversimplify the next part of the sermon by telling you that following Jesus more closely is the answer to all of your problems if you have conflict in your life. But listen to me when I tell you that following Jesus a little more closely is the answer to all of your problems when you have conflict in your life. 
Because Jesus came to show us how to resolve the deepest, darkest conflicts in our lives, whether they're in your relationship at home or whether they're happening right now in Charlottesville, Virginia. Jesus came to show us how to make peace and understanding how he makes peace with us. And following his methods of peacemaking will change everything in your life, I promise. There's a few ways that you go about this, really practical things that you can learn to follow Jesus and do what he did with us. The first thing to do is you lead with affirmation. You don't lead with the negative stuff. You don't start an argument by saying, what the blank is wrong with you? Like, what were you thinking? Like, uh, don't you care? Why don't you listen? Before you get deep in the weeds of a conflict, you got to lead with something positive. you got to lead at least with the understanding between you and the person you're with, your, your wife, or your fiancé, or your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you lead with the understanding that we are going to resolve this without someone storming out of the room. We're going to resolve this without someone's fist in a wall. We're going to resolve this, you know, w- without calling each other names or threatening to leave because we have a firm foundation of love, mutual support. So the first words you say in a conflict is always incredibly important. Leading with the negative stuff, what's wrong with you is not going to get you anywhere. So you lead with, look, I'm, I'm hurting here. I'm wondering if you're hurting too. And I, I know that it's not all your fault. I know I'm not perfect. Even if you're just simmering and deep down you know it's all their fault. Man, if you can just bring yourself to say those words, it's like the walls fall down between you. I know I'm not perfect. Sweetie, I've just been struggling with this. Are you struggling with this too? Can we just talk about this for a second? And you just, you start that way and then you stay on point. You don't allow yourself to be sucked into other uh, tertiary arguments or debates. You don't dig up the past. You don't use diversionary tactics. If your boyfriend is asking you why you still have a gender profile, you don't bring up that waitress he thought looked like Ariana Grande two weeks ago or whatever. Like you just deal with the issue in front of you without getting off track. Third You examine yourself first before you examine the other person. We talked about this last week with Jesus' teaching about taking the, the log out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of someone else's. You always look to yourself first and find whatever darkness exists in yourself first. Before I could issue any kind of statement about Charlottesville, before I could denounce the racism on the display in Charlottesville, I had to really search my heart. And understand that this evil that's on display in Charlottesville, it rests in some part of me too, y'all. Like, I had to search my own heart and fess up to the stuff that that I was raised with in the sticks of East Texas, the stuff that still kind of lingers there, you know, and, and, and understand that before I start criticizing other people. In conflicts at home, it's the same way you examine yourself first. You know, when, when Gio and I receive couples for counseling, sometimes it's for little stuff, sometimes it's for really big stuff, like affairs and stuff. Whenever couples come to us with an affair uh, situation, we always know the affair, while it's important and dramatic, it's just a presenting s- symptom of something else. So the affair didn't happen in a vacuum. There were conditions in the relationship, maybe not caused by the other person or anything like that, but definitely conditions in a relationship that lead to that sort of thing usually. And it's not to excuse the act of adultery or cheating, but understanding that there's two people in a relationship And whenever there are issues, both people are involved deeply in those issues. That's the beginning of healing. It's not as simple as going, I'm the good person and he's the bad person. Or we're the good people and they're the bad people. That's, look, that's worldly kind of thinking. Jesus thinking is realizing there's light and darkness in all of us. 
there's light and darkness in me, there's light and darkness in you. And when you start a conflict that way, from that vantage point in a relationship, that's the recipe for healing. Next, and this is the second most important thing I'm going to say today. When you fight, you fight as a team. You fight as a team. So here's the thing. When you're arguing in a relationship, it's not me versus you. If you can wrap your head around this, the happiest couples in the world have wrapped their heads around this. It's not me versus Giovanna in a fight. Because even if I win hands down in a fight against Giovanna, no one wins. No one wins when one person wins. No one wins. It just makes the division deeper because then you're like, I won and you lost. Ha ha. That's not the way relationships work. It's not one versus the other. It's two versus the enemy. It's the two of you working through or against whatever conflict you've got in front of you. So if you can fathom your conflicts in that way, man, that's a healthy first step. Gio and I often refer to Ephesians 6, 12, whenever we're caught up in a fight or we're really in one of those ruts, man. And in Ephesians 6, 12, Paul says whenever there's struggles, whenever there's pain, whenever it's hard, that just, it shapes us. We have to understand that our fight is not against people. And this, this also applies to Charlottesville, y'all. Our fight is not against people. And at home, in your fights with your one and only, your fight is not against that person. You're fighting together against some darkness, you know. And so Gio and I will be mid-fight, and I'll just remind her, look, honey, we're fighting against the principalities and the darkness and the rulers, the powers of this dark world. Sometimes I'll just walk around the house whispering, principalities and dark world and rulers. And, you know, like, remind myself, it's not her. Like, we're fighting together against this this darkness together, and uh, I encourage couples to take up that, um, that way of looking at conflicts as well at home. Finally, and the most important thing I'll say today, when you fight as a couple, you pray. You pray for each other, obviously, but you pray with each other. And that chill that just went down your spine is the thought of heavy awkwardness, praying together out loud at home with this one person that you're fighting with. That's hard to do. And not a lot of people do it, frankly. A lot of people say they pray for each other, but praying with each other is a different deal. This is uh, the, the second most shocking thing. After what everybody says to each other, the kinds of insults we throw at each other, is how little we pray together as couples. Now, there's all kinds of studies about this, especially with Christian couples. And these studies indicate that the best Indicator, the best sign of relational health and survival is when a couple prays together. When they hear each other praying for one another. Less than 1% of married couples that say they pray together wind up divorced. Less than 1%. Here's the problem. Not anybody is praying for each other. So less than 4% of couples are actually praying with each other. But only 1% of those 4% are getting divorced compared to 40, 45% of divorce in society. It's pretty awesome. But praying for each other, with each other, is intimidating and weird, right? Because you got all this pride. You don't want to hear the other person that you just fought tooth and nail with. You don't, wanna, you, don't want, you don't want them to hear you saying all these nice things to God. Or maybe you do and you say all the mean things to God and you're like, just help her with her crazy or whatever. Like, you don't want to do that either. Like, that's, that's manipulative praying. We've all, we've all been there. You don't want to be that guy. But is it really that intimidating if you think about it? We build it up in our heads. But is it that weird? If you believe in God, is it that weird to take the person of the hand you're with and say, God, thank you for this woman. 
I thank you for this woman that you've entrusted me with. Thank you for your daughter. Help me to love her like she's your daughter. Forgive me for the ways I've fallen short. Can you all just feel the the walls falling down between two people? If, If one person says, forgive me for the ways I've fallen short here, God. Help me to love this person more like you love them. God, I see your image in her. I want her to become the person you created her to be. Help me to be an instrument of your peace in her life. And look, sometimes you don't even need to say words. You can just, you can just pray for each other in each other's presence. There's been more than one time in the last 18 years that I've, I've been awakened in the middle of the night with a hand on my head. And I turn around and my beautiful wife is there with her hand on my head praying for me in the middle of the night. She's Pentecostal. So she just <laughs> prays. She doesn't need me to know that she's praying for me. And I wish, I wish that she didn't have to do the laying the hand thing. She could just do like a laser thing from a distance so she didn't wake me up. But she doesn't really need me to know that she's praying for me. She's just investing her prayer life, her time in me. How good does that make me feel? Especially if we've been at odds, if we've been fighting. I can't tell you how romantic that is to hear someone say how much they love you, to hear someone tell God how much they care, how much they want to be better. There is nothing more romantic you can do for someone that you love than to talk to God about how much you love them. In their presence, let them hear it. Especially if you've been fighting, man, the walls fall down. And that's the way Jesus is with us. You know, he did all five of these things we just talked about with us. Romans 5 kind of summarizes this. Paul says in Romans 5, since we've been justified, that just means made right. We were wrong with God before we've been made right through Jesus, through our faith in him. We now have peace with God through Jesus. Through him we've obtained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. We rejoice in the hope of God. And then he talks about how suffering produces um, endurance, endurance character, character hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the line. That's the money line right there. Christ died for the ungodly. So this is what I want you to see today is that there was a time when you were ungodly. There was a time when you rejected God. If not with your words, then with your actions. There was a time when you maybe despised God or you insulted God with your selfishness. With I know I have with my selfishness. It was at the worst time in our life when you were the farthest you've ever been from God. It was right then. It was for that moment that Jesus died for you. At just the right moment, just in time, he gave everything for you. First, he came to you on your turf. He came to us on our turf, affirming us as children of God. He came to us, ungodly people, and said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Let me show you how. Let me show you the way. And then he took on a burden that wasn't his to take on. That was Jesus saying, look, I know it's not all your fault. I'll take some of this burden. I'll take some of this blame. And then he forgave us, even from the cross. You know when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That wasn't just for the Roman soldiers. That was for us too. He was bridging the divide between us and our conflicted ways and God and his perfection. He prayed for us. And he prays for you still through the Holy Spirit that lives in you that you would be reconciled to God that you would be one with him again. 
what you learn from Jesus about conflict is this. When he came to us on our turf, on our terms, he didn't need to be right. He just wanted to be reconciled. Jesus didn't need to win the fights. He just wanted to win your heart, to win you back. And so he bore that burden. He bore the cross that wasn't even his to bear so that our conflicts could be put to rest. So that you could sleep well at night knowing no matter what occurs, you'll be with Jesus forever. Not because of your goodness, but because of his. Because of his willingness to put an end to the conflict that existed between you and God. Man, some of us need to take this message home and employ it right away. Day one, starting now. You go home and you take up the cross. Even if you feel in your gut that it's not your burden to bear, that the other person created this burden, you take up that cross and you affirm them and you forgive them and you pray for them because you don't need to win. You don't need to be right. You just want reconciliation. You just want their heart back. This is the way of Jesus. And every conflict that you'll face in your relationships is a gospel opportunity. Would you pray with me? God, I pray for people right now who are in the midst of some conflict, whether it's internal or in a relationship, in a marriage. Lord, I pray that there would be humility in this room today, that your spirit would be poured out on these people, especially those who are torn up by conflict, and that you would break their hearts wide open and fill their hearts with humility and with love, with the capacity to take up a cross that maybe isn't theirs to take, maybe that they don't deserve to take up a cross and to pray for the person that they're with for the sake of bringing healing, God. Give us vision in our relationships, vision that goes beyond just today, winning the arguments of now, God. Help us to see the future and what you can do with us in our relationships to bring about your gospel glory in each of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for bridging the gap between us and God. Help us, Jesus bridge the gap between us and each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.